Good morning. Thank you for being with us this Lord's Day in worship. If you have your Bible with you, if you turn to Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5 will be our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through Luke's gospel together. And if you've been with us, you know that one of the, the themes we've been looking at in our study of Luke has been the authority of Jesus. And this is something that Luke really reiterates throughout these opening chapters, that Jesus has all authority. It's what we're reminded of in Matthew's gospel, when we come to the end of Matthew's gospel, and Jesus himself says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he says that in the context of the Great Commission, where he gives a charge to the disciples uh, to go out and to make disciples of the nation baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And one of the disciples that he gives that charge to is Matthew himself, in whose gospel we read that statement. And in today's passage in Luke chapter 5, uh, we see where Matthew, also known as Levi, uh, first becomes a disciple of Jesus. And so we're going to look at just a few verses this morning, uh, but verses that contain quite a bit for us about what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. So we're going to look at math, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 27 through 32. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand as I read this passage for us. This is what Dr. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Speaking of Jesus, he says this, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You would pray with me. Father, we thank you that Jesus indeed came to call sinners to repentance. That in order for us to repent, we need to understand that we indeed have sinned. And so, Father, help us to see that as we look at your word. Help us to understand deeper what it means to follow Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus. We pray that you would do a gospel work in us today, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I was reading just the other day a, a Gallup poll. It's one they do every year. It's, a, it's an epic survey they do where they survey Americans to find uh, what are the most trusted professions and what are the least trusted professions. Who, who do you trust the most? Who do you trust the least when it comes to careers and, and jobs? And, and this may be no surprise what they found. Now, nurses ranked first, followed by medical doctors and pharmacists. Uh, these were the people that Americans said they, they trusted the most. And it's probably not a surprise the ones they said they trusted the least. Uh, the top of the list, or really the bottom of the list, I should say, in, 
and who we trust were telemarketers. And I would say that we would have a hearty amen for that. I found it interesting that right next to telemarketers were members of Congress and car salesmen. <laughs> so the ones we trust the least. And I was curious in reading this list of, of where clergy fell. Uh, we were right in the middle. Uh, we were somewhere in between labor union leaders and lawyers. So probably have a little work to do on the trust factor there for my fellow pastors. Uh, but if you were to take this type of survey uh, in the first century among the Jewish people, it would universally be agreed that among the, the least trusted and really the most despised of professions in that day would be the tax collector. Now, we're not very fond of taxes in our day and age, but to understand why there was really a, a hatred, an all-out visceral hatred for tax collectors, you need to understand a little bit about the Roman tax system that existed during the days of Jesus, the days that we're reading of in Luke chapter 5, because the Romans were oppressing the Jewish people, and part of their oppression was this overbearing tax system they put on them. So, for example, there was what they called a, a poll tax, and the poll tax was simply paid because you were breathing Roman air. It's because you were alive in an area that Rome controlled, and so you owed them a tax. There was a ground tax that required you to give 10% of anything you grew and, and raised uh, back to the Romans. Uh, there was also an income tax, which was a percentage of your earnings. And then there were various duties and tolls. Uh, these were applied in all sorts of ways. And so you had to pay a toll to use Roman roads. You had to pay a toll to park your boat in the harbor that Rome controlled. You had to pay duties on anything that you purchased that was imported or things that would be exported. You needed to pay a, a sales tax on top of that. In fact, they taxed so many different things. They even taxed the cart that you used based on the number of wheels that it had. And in order to enforce this overbearing tax system, they used something called tax farming. And what they found to be the most efficient way for them as Romans to receive money from the Jewish people was to go among the Jewish people and to hire out from them those who would collect the taxes. And through this tax farming system, they would actually auction off the right to collect these taxes. And the winning bidder then would become the tax collector for that district. That tax collector then would make a fortune because they would not only enforce this Roman tax system, they would add to it. In fact, that was the incentive to be a tax collector. And so they would go to collect the taxes that were due, but they would inflate those taxes to pad their own pocket. And in the process, they would become extremely wealthy and extremely hated because among the Jewish people, they were seen as traitors. They were seen as thieves, and they were especially seen as unclean. And in fact, if you think back just last week to what we talked about as we walked through the Word, and we talked about uh, the lepers and the paralytic in Jesus' day, and, and how they were viewed and how unclean they were, you could just put tax collectors right in there with them. Because the rabbis taught that like the leper, if a tax collector were to come into your home, everyone in that home and that home was immediately unclean. They weren't trusted. In fact, they weren't allowed to give testimony in a court of law. Uh, they were despised. They weren't allowed to enter into the synagogue because they were unclean. 
And it's important to understand this context because here in Luke's gospel, in the fifth chapter, we find among some of the first disciples, the first followers that Jesus calls, we find a tax collector. One of the most unclean, one of the most untrusted people alive in Jesus' day. This is who he calls to follow him. Well, what does that call look like? Well, that's what we're going to look like look at today because as we look at Levi's call, we really learn a lot about our call, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we'll begin with that first point I put there in your outline. And we find that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us, point one, to surrender all, to surrender everything. And notice again what we read in verse 27. Luke tells us that after this, Jesus went out and he sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, there's a few things we learn here about Levi. First, we learn he's a tax collector. He reiterates that. He's not only a tax collector, he's a tax collector sitting at the tax booth. <laughs> well, Luke wants us to make sure that we understand this was his livelihood. This is what he did. This is what he was known for. This is where you could find him. They're doing this wicked, unclean, thieving business. And it wasn't just that he was a tax collector. He even tells us a bit when he tells us his name was Levi. Now, we know him mostly for the name that we go, he goes by uh, as well, Matthew. And, and the Gospels really don't give us a, a great bit of background on this, other than we know historically that it wasn't uncommon for people to have two names. Oftentimes, they were known by a, a Hebrew name and a Greek name. And so we can infer here that Levi is his Hebrew name, his family name given to him by his, his Jewish family, and Matthew was his Hebrew name. Matthew could have also been, or excuse me, the Greek name. Matthew could have also been the name that, that Jesus gave him once he decided to follow him, because it's that name that he's known for for the rest of Luke's gospel. In the very next chapter, he's referred to as Matthew. But what really I find significant here is that Luke, in his well-studied research, makes sure that we understand that his Hebrew name, his, his birth name, his given name was Levi. This means that when Levi Matthew's parents, when he was born on that eighth day after his birth, when family and friends would gather around for his circumcision and for his naming, he, he would have given him this name Levi. And for the Hebrew people, names had great significance. And we know where the name Levi comes from. We know that uh, from God's word that Levi was the third of Jacob's sons. We know that there was a tribe named after him from those he fathered. We know that it is the tribe of Levi who really took a faithful stand for God. In fact, if you look back to Exodus 32, where you find that episode of the golden calf, and you find how the people of God quickly turned from God to worship gold, there was one tribe that stood faithful. It was the tribe of Levi, and it was because of that event that God then gave the tribe of Levi the charge to be the priest of God, to be set apart. They would have been known for their faithfulness. And so if you were a Hebrew father in the first century, and you had a boy, and you wanted that boy to have a name that meant faithfulness and set apart and someone who's going to walk with the Lord faithfully, you would give him the name Levi. Levi, 
the ones who would be faithful to God and would not worship the golden calf. Now think about that for a second as you consider now where we find Levi Matthew. He has now forsaken his God. He has turned from his people. And he is worshiping gold. <laughs> he is doing the exact opposite of what his name implies. In essence, he has forgotten what his name is. And maybe some of you, when you were younger, and you got to that age where you could go out on your own and spend time with your friends, maybe your father said to you before you left the house, don't forget what your name is. I can remember my father saying that very thing to me in my teenage years. Don't forget what your name is. And, and it implies a lot, doesn't it? It implies, don't, don't forget that, that you represent this family. You represent your father. Behave. <laughs> Do the right thing. And now we find Levi at a point in his life where he's not behaving. He's not doing the right thing. And, and I would imagine that every time he heard the name Levi, there was a bit of shame that sunk in. Because as much as we say, don't forget what your name is, you can't forget what your name is. Levi knew his name. And he may have chosen not to go by. He may have preferred Matthew during this season of his life. But it was his name nonetheless. It's that name that Luke uses in this passage. It may have even been that name that Jesus called him in this moment. And he may have expressly looked at him and said, Levi, follow me. It's a reminder to us of just where Levi had sunk to. So perhaps Levi knew this. Now chances are this was not the first time that Levi had encountered Jesus. Now like others in that region, he had heard, I'm sure, of Jesus. He had probably witnessed Jesus. He had probably heard the teachings. He had seen the miracles. And all the while, he had felt the shame, the conviction that he had turned from God, that he had been so unfaithful, that he had, in essence, forgotten what his name was, and he was worshiping gold. It, I believe at this moment, God had prepared his heart to hear this call from Jesus. He's weighed down by burden, as he's weighed down by guilt and shame, as he's weighed down by the awareness of his sin. Jesus comes to him, and he hears him say, follow me. Now again, consider this. In that day, in that age, everyone else, who was of any religious stature, was saying to Levi Matthew, get away from me. You can't come in the synagogue. You can't even come in the court of law. You can't come in my house. Because I, I follow God and you don't. And to the religious community, they wouldn't associate with Levi. They'd have nothing to do with Levi other than having to pay those taxes and hand over their money. They would have nothing to do with him. And along comes this rabbi now who doesn't say get away from me, Levi. He says, follow me. And so Luke tells us verse 28. He left everything. And he rose and he followed him. He would never collect another gold coin. Think about that. And so far, we've seen in Luke's gospel, a fisherman called to follow Jesus. Peter, James, and John. They, the scripture tells us they, they left everything to follow Jesus. They left it all behind. They surrendered all. But, but they could always go back to fishing. 
Fishing was not an ungodly profession. Fishing was not wicked. Fishing was okay. Fishing's still okay. You weren't associated with sin and wickedness because you were out in a boat fishing. And so, Peter, we see in the Gospels, one day he goes back and goes fishing. There's nothing wrong with that in Peter's life. But for Levi to ever go back to the tax booth, that, that would be to forsake this call and to turn from God. When he said that he would follow Jesus, when he left everything, he left it forever. There would be no turning back. And friends, this is what Christ calls every one of us to do with the wickedness, the sin in our life. We are to repent, to turn from it, and not to go back, to leave it all behind. Because we can't hold on to the gospel of Jesus while we're still holding on desperately to our sin. And that's the picture we have here of Levi. He leaves it all behind. He repents, he turns from it, and he turns to Christ. That's the first call we see here. The second is this, number two. Jesus calls us to seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. So what does a tax collector do? <laughs> When he shuts down his business, when he leaves it all behind and he starts to follow Jesus, well, here we find what Levi does is he, he throws a, a party for Jesus. And he invites all his wicked friends to come to the party. In verse 29, Luke says that, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Luke makes it clear here that, that Levi was not having a retirement party. <laughs> this wasn't a, a going out of business party or, or happy retirement party. This wasn't a party for Levi. He makes it real clear that, that Levi has this feast for Jesus. And who, is, who does he invite? He invites tax collectors and others. And we know that these others then are referred to by the Pharisees and the religious community as, as sinners. Again, these were all the people that you shouldn't associate with, that you shouldn't have at your table. This is who Levi was counted among. But now, in having this celebration for Jesus, he invites all of his friends to come to it. Well, remember, we're at a point in the Gospels where the, the Pharisees and the scribes, when you see them enter into the picture, that there's probably a, an investigative nature to this. They are out there looking at Jesus, investigating Jesus, they're really wanting to catch Jesus doing the wrong thing. They, they want to check and make sure that Jesus, this rabbi, is abiding by God's law and their law, which, according to their law, it expressly said, you don't share a table with someone like this. These are sinners. These are wicked people. And yet, this is exactly who Levi invites to the party, because these, these were his friends. These were the people he knew. Uh, these were the people now that he wanted to know Jesus. Years ago, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with a, a young man named Jeremy when I was a campus minister at WKU. And Jeremy had no religious background. He, he grew up not far from here in Kentucky, but he had only been to church a couple times in his life for a wedding or a funeral. He, he knew nothing of the gospel. 
It was as if I was in a third world country that never had a missionary in it when I was talking to him about Jesus. And so it, it took time to really explain the gospel, walk through the gospel with him. But as he came to understand it and God worked in his life, he, he put his faith and his trust fully in Jesus. And one of the very first things Jeremy did was begin to tell other people about Christ. And so we had had lunch uh, for quite a while talking about the gospel, talking about the gospel, he then put his faith in Christ, and then we continued to have lunches, and he would invite another friend to lunch. Somebody else that he wanted to hear about Jesus. I can remember on one occasion him saying, hey, I, I invited my friend, he couldn't come, but could we go to his dorm room today? He, he really needs to know about Jesus. I can think back on people who then placed their faith, friends of Jeremy, people who I'm still in contact with today who came to faith because this sinner trusted Jesus and he wanted all his friends to know about Jesus. Friends, this is the work of the gospel. When, when God calls us to put our faith in Jesus, to follow Jesus, he's, he's calling us not only to follow Christ, but to invite others to follow him as well. That's the clear picture we see here of Levi, who after trusting in Jesus, then wants Everyone he knows to trust in Jesus. And yet so often we, we don't do this. As I mentioned last week, I, I was personally convicted in my study to think about the, the leper who was healed and Jesus told him to tell no one. And he told everyone. <laughs> and now we live in this time where Jesus has told us to tell everyone and so often we tell no one. And as I've thought about it, as I've talked to many of you about it, I think one of the reasons we don't tell people about Jesus is we're, we're scared that we don't know the right things to say. What if they have a question I can't answer, and, and I'm not sure where to go? Well, I can tell you this, people do have questions you can't answer, so you can get that off the table right now. I've got questions you can't answer, you've got questions I can't answer. But, but not knowing what to say, that's, that's an easy fix. And so, I've shared this before, I'll share it again. If you've got your Bible with you, turn to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible with you, write this down and go home and write it in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible at home, talk to me after service day, I will get you a Bible. Romans chapter 3. And you may have been taught by someone that you shouldn't write in your Bible, and no disrespect to them, but you write all you want in your Bible. And you can write there in Romans 3.23, at the bottom of the page, write Romans 6.23. And I'll tell you why in a second. But there, Romans 3.23, this is what God's Word says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is where the gospel starts with an acknowledgement and understanding that, that we have sinned. I've talked to so many people who as soon as I start talking about the gospel, they, they have this conception, this perception that somehow I'm looking down on them. I'm saying they're, they're worse than me. And I want to make it real clear up front, nobody's worse than anybody. We, we are all sinners. And at the same time, to make sure they understand, they indeed are a sinner. We've all sinned. We, we've got to understand that to begin. And so we start with Romans 3.23. And so I will simply open up my Bible with someone and I'll read to them or have them read from the scripture. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then you look at the bottom of the page. And what does it say? Romans 6.23. So now you know where to go next. As long as you can remember Romans 
That's what you need to know. And so you start there. And then you turn the page to Romans 6.23, or two pages to Romans 6.23, and you write at the bottom of that page, Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. So you go from 3.23 to 6.23, and 6.23 tells us the wages of our sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have all sinned, every one of us, and the wages, what we've earned for our sin is death. We, we deserve the eternal separation from God, the eternal wrath of God. It's what we deserve for our sin. It's what we're due for our sin. It's what we're owed for our sin. Just like you get paid a wage, it's what you're owed for your work. You get paid death and wrath. It's what you've earned for your sin. Where do you go next? Romans 5.8, just turn one page back, and at the bottom of that page, you can write Romans 10, 9, and 10. Romans 10, 9, and 10. And so you look at Romans 5.8, and God's word says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We should never get over the weight of what that verse says. We have all sinned. We are deserving of the wrath and eternal death from God for our sin. But God loves us. He demonstrates that love that Jesus Christ died for our sin. He took the place we deserve. He who lived a perfectly righteous life, fully God and fully man, died in our place. But it's not enough just to know this. We have to do something about it. And so you turn then to Romans 10, 9 and 10. And you read this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now that's a term we throw around a lot in the church. You know, I've, I've been saved. Have you been saved? But it's a term sometimes we don't take time to unpack and explain. And Romans 10, 9 and 10 explains it very clearly. That if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's why I ask when I baptize, have you confessed with your mouth, Jesus is Lord? And do you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead? The, these are statements of confession. They, they are statements acknowledging that we have trusted in Christ as our Lord, our Sovereign. We believe in the resurrection. We believe God raised him from the dead. We believe he conquered sin and death. And then you don't need to write this reference. You can just move a couple verses down to it. Verse 13 then says, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And then you can simply ask someone, have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Is he your Lord today? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? If they say no, you can invite them to do that. And they say, well, I don't, I don't know if God could save me. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
yeah, but you, you don't understand the things I've done. You don't understand where I've been. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. There is none that's gone so far that God's reach does not extend to him. What is Luke pointing out to us in his gospel? That very thing. Jesus doesn't go to the religious leaders who just messed up a little bit. To, to the moral people of his day who, who while they were very moral, they just, they just were missing that spiritual component. Hey, he doesn't go to someone who's just kind of you know, tripped up a little bit in life. He, he goes to the most unclean, the most wretched, the most despised, not only to save them, but to be among the twelve. I mean, think about that. Of all the people that he's going to entrust this kingdom work too, he extends this offer to the most despised and the most wretched of his day. There is none that he cannot save and will not use. And God in his grace and providence extends this call today and chooses to use us of all people to extend this call with us. And friends, it begins inviting those friends over, reaching out to them, that coworker, that family member, that neighbor, and talking to them about Jesus. That's what we see here in Levi's life. That's what God calls us to do in ours. But back to Luke 5 here, notice as Levi does this and he invites these people over that that the religious community seems to, or looks at as, as wicked sinners, they take note of that. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So, so they're sitting here in a rather pious way, looking at Jesus the rabbi, who they're investigating. They're thinking, man, <laughs> this guy is way off. He doesn't even understand. You can't associate with these people. They don't even address that to him. They, they say to his disciples, hey, who does he think he is? Why, why would you even allow him to do this? They were so busy looking at everybody else's sin. They, they weren't paying attention to their own. And by the way, we, we have the same tendency, don't we? I mean, even today, while I'm talking about wickedness and wretchedness and those despised, it is natural for us then to begin to think about other people. Well, I'll tell you who really needs to hear this sermon. <laughs> So-and-so. And maybe in that process, we forget that we are the ones God providentially has sat in the pew this morning, in the pulpit this morning. Maybe we need to hear. Because it's easy for us to compare ourselves to a wicked and lost world, and then we look pretty good, don't we? Jesus calls us to examine our own hearts. And until we do that, we may find ourselves not actually following Jesus. And that's the third and final point here in our outline. Number three, we will not answer Jesus' call if we do not understand our own need to be saved. And so Jesus answers these critics, these Pharisees and scribes, verse 31, and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question this morning. You can raise your hand and respond to this. How many of you like to go to the doctor? I don't see a single hand in this room right now. Okay. So maybe some of you have a deeper understanding of when you need to go to the doctor. Maybe you're know somebody, married to somebody, close friends to somebody who never wants to go to the doctor. Maybe you've had that conversation where they are obviously sick. They are hacking and sneezing and flush and, and they look and act terrible and you say to them, I think you need to go to a doctor. And maybe you've heard them say, oh, I'm fine. I, I don't need a doctor. <laughs> I really think you need to go to a doctor. No, no, I'm not. Need a little sleep, you know, a little night. Well, I'll be fine. See, so often that's our tendency is we we don't want to go. We we don't think we're that bad. You imagine it this way: if I were to come up to you after church today and I said, "Hey, I I've got an amazing opportunity this week. Uh, there is a a cancer doctor." who is relocated uh, from overseas to Indianapolis. And this guy is amazing. In fact, 100% of cancer patients who have seen him, he has identified a cure for them. He has a 100% rate of curing people of cancer. And, and it only costs $1,000. We, we can go this week. I have an appointment with him. It is hard to get an appointment with this guy. I've got an appointment with him. I want to take you this week with me. Bring $1,000, and this guy can cure any, any cancer you've got. And if I were to tell every one of you in this room, let's, let's go do that. Now, every one of you in this room would not go with me. I would imagine a number of you would say, well, that, that's great, but uh, Brother Richard, I, I, don't, I don't have cancer. I don't, I don't think I need to pay a guy $1,000. Um, but I'm sure the people, there's other people that need that. There's some sick people in our church. There's people with cancer. You, you should take them. I, I'm okay. But what if you weren't okay? What if you had stage five cancer? What if the doctor had told you last week, you, you, you have days left, and there's nothing else I can do for you? And then I said to you, I know somebody who can do something, and it, it's it's, it's miraculous. I mean, for $1,000, he, he can really heal. He, he's done it. Friends, you would beg, borrow, steal, whatever you had to do if you didn't have that $1,000. You would clear your schedule immediately to go see that doctor with you. If you knew you were sick. Jesus is not saying to the Pharisees, you're okay, they're not okay, the doctor deals with the sick people, you're the well people, and that's why I'm spending time with the sick people. Jesus is saying, only the people that are sick understand their need for the doctor, and friends, the Pharisees were sick. And every one of us in this room is sick, because all have sin, and fall short of the glory of God. But until you realize how desperately ill you are, you will never go to the doctor. And until you realize 
how lost you are in your sin, you will never turn to Jesus. And it is a gift of God for you and I to understand that, for our eyes to be opened to our true wickedness and our rebellion against God. And even as I say that, there are some of you perhaps saying, well, I'm really not that bad. Oh, friends, you are. And I am. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is in the business of taking people who are wicked and unclean and cleansing them. That's the picture of the leper. That's the picture of the paralytic. When we can't work our way to righteousness, we are dead on a mat and we need somebody to heal us and that's what Jesus does. We cannot cleanse ourselves of sin. We are covered with it. But Jesus, with one word, makes us clean. And until we recognize our need, friends, we will not go him for this cleansing work. I'll remind you of what God says, God's word says about our need. Isaiah 53 verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, not some, all. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, Romans chapter 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is where the gospel work begins. And I pray, if this work has not yet begun in your life, that it would begin today. And so I want to invite you to stand together and to pray for that very thing with me, if you would.